0: Starting the show off with an amazing discovery, Archive OS, the Archive of Operating Systems. Its mission is to save great free operating systems, Linux, of course, the BSDs, the free DOSs, Solaris, and many other independent operating systems, and make it bootable. Look at this thing, Wes. How beautiful is this? It's like the Internet Archive in an ISO. A testament to the ages. So you can go check it out at archiveos.org. And I'm going to look into this more. i got to try this. They say it's important to save systems and let the next generation of users find them, try them, and learn as much as possible. This has been rattling around in my head. I haven't tried this, obviously. But what's been rattling around in my head is trying to set up some old VMs, or I should say set up new VMs of old versions of Linux just to, like, what was it like to use KDE2? What was it like to use GNOME2? Like, what was it really like? Because we refer to it all the time. I've been really tempted to set up some VMs to do this just to have them sitting around when I want to try it. Oh, yeah, right? And I think that's where this site is maybe useful. A
1: lot of times, if you just maybe you have a disk image or a tarball, but it goes along, it's a long way from actually making things bootable. So, if you yeah. have some of this set up or ready to go, you right. might
0: actually use it. That would be the perfect part. Like one ISO you download, you load it on your machine, and it boots the whole thing up. That would be the holy grail. Maybe they'll get there one day. Maybe they'll get there. But right now, they're just archiving these old great operating systems. If you do want to try this, it's a great resource for that so you can build your own system. But one day, we may get to that ISO. Somebody should build it. And call it the Linux Unplugged booter. No, don't do that. Call it something else. Yeah, definitely something else.
2: <laughs> As I look at the pile of ThinkPads stacked up in the corner of the room, you are each building an archive of different operating systems. How many? Yeah, how
0: yeah. many do you have there? How many ThinkPads is it? Do you want to reveal the number?
2: Uh, well, from what I can see in front of me, one, two, three, four, five, six,
0: seven, seven. I think that I can see. <laughs> you could just have like various different states of Linux on each one of them, like a, like a cross section.
2: Yeah. I kind of like them to be usable, like actual usable Um, machines, not just like something that you you put in a cupboard and and never think about again. So there's actually two on my desk right now. One of them is um, a machine that we use for audio production. Um, I don't actually use it. Samantha uses it for audio production on the podcast. But the other one that is on right now, I'm running offline IMAP to synchronize all my email down from Gmail, because I, I quite like having an offline copy of all my email. Just in case anything goes wrong, I can open this laptop up, and it's got a local copy of all my email, and I've got Mutt installed on there. So <laughs> at a pinch. Uh, it's got no GUI. I've got no graphical interface on this thing at all. It's only command line applications. And offline I'm up to sync my my mail, and then Mutt if I, if I need to actually write an email.
0: So now I can visualize you during the zombie apocalypse. Hunched over this old laptop, reading your email on Mutt. <laughs> it's a, it's a beautiful. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> and I
2: have a lot of email to read, so once the zombies come, I'll be quite busy reading on my but, old archive. Right, laptop. of
3: course. <laughs> but on that but on that old laptop only seven minutes
0: to read it all. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> this is Linux Unplugged, episode two hundred and forty-nine from May 15th, 2018. Oh, welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that undoubtedly should have gone to that English class more often. And my name is Chris. My name is Wes. I'm just saying, might have helped out in this whole podcast. It probably crew. would. Went into Too IT. Too late for that? No. Ended up podcasting. You know, Wes, we'll muddle through. We have a great show. We're going to talk about GNOME removing the ability to launch binary apps. That's been the hot topic in our community this week. (laughs) Hot, (laughs) hot, hot. Yeah. We'll do a deep dive into the new Bookmark Sync stuff that's coming to Firefox, talk about System76 and LVFS's back and forth, and some new features that look like they could be coming to GNOME if Will Cook gets his way. Wimpy's here with a new trick, and malware may have been found in the Snap Store. Is everything ruined? We'll get all worked up and super upset. Plus the folks from Plasma, well some of them at least, went to Berlin and came back with some code. We'll talk about data collection in 1804 and some of the attempts to generate controversy for ad clicks, and purism gets busted by Intel. We alluded to this on a recent Linux Action News, but now we have a lot more details. And then we'll ask if Docker is dangerous, and if it's time to just drop that all GTK or all cute mentality. Is it still relevant today, Wes? We'll find out. Don't answer. We're gonna get into that, but before we go any further, we gotta bring in that mumble room. Time appropriate greetings, mumble room. Heyo, heyo,
2: hello, oh, Hi. good
0: day. <laughs> I like that. That was a good mix this week. Didn't expect that one coming. So I want to start with the elephant in the room, and that is the story about GNOME removing the ability to launch binary apps from Nautilus. So we got uh, the, uh, the, big, the big news from last GNOME release really was the removal of the desktop application icons, the desktop icons from Nautilus. And now it looks like this is sort of a continuation of that uh, cleanup is, is really launching binary applications when you double-click on them in Nautilus. So like .bin and .run files, uh, perhaps app images as well, .desktop shortcuts, or like a shell script that you might execute. You know, like, like the dumb artist that I am, uh, apparently, doing things the old way, I just downloaded uh, a new game off of uh, Good Old Games (GOG) and was get, you know, assuming I would just be able to double click and run it. I don't know what I was thinking. I should have definitely considered opening the terminal and running it that way. Yeah, of course, you should. You should be running all your programs that way, Chris. <clears throat> now it's pretty easy to poke fun at this decision, and it, you know, it, it of course plays into that whole narrative of GNOME always removing functionality. I think the 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 Common reaction I've seen on the various internet outlets is just when you thought GNOME couldn't take anywhere any more functionality, they're taking away the ability to run apps. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's a little hype. It's not. It's not really that. It's it's more really about how apps should be launched from the app launcher, and the files should the files app should be managing files. Um, and they think removing the ability to launch binaries from Nautilus will improve its security. And, of course there'll still be other ways to launch apps so what do you think initial impressions uh, when you hear this kind of thing Wes is it is it are you so tired from drama that uh, you don't really is it just you're just sort of numb to it or do you have like a strong response to this
1: okay I will admit to being at least a little bit numb um, I also have some sympathies I feel like gnome gets viewed has so many different things and a lot of different roles. Some of that might be valid, especially now that they're on so many desktops by default, but that's really the the distribution's choice. I can see why GNOME wants to craft things into a more elegant desktop for the future. Maybe not all users are ready for that. I can see why people want to keep a lot of standard paradigms around. I, I personally don't need them. I'm okay with GNOME developing into whatever it is that they want. I understand why it upsets people, though, because... Hey, this is a lot of people's workflows. You can't do it anymore. You're not allergic
0: to bees, are you? Cuz there, oh, <laughs> there is a there is a wasp. Here, maybe you could put this on top of him. There's, there you go, Wes. Here, just uh maybe you could trap that wasp that's walking around by your hand there, Wes. <laughs> uh, just a little uh little uh, Pacific Northwest summer. There you go. That's, that's sure, that surely won't piss him off. Now he's trapped in the bell. <laughs> now let's ring it. Now. <laughs> All right. Well, I agree. I think that people often lump gnome into one singular category when it's a bunch of individual developers and people that are doing a lot of different work and it often encompasses many projects and all of those disclosures aside, I can't imagine something like this ever landing in like Kaja, for example. What do you think, Wimpy? Would you see it? Could you see a rationale for something like this landing in a, in a Mate desktop environment? Well,
3: probably not because we've we choose not to remove features if at all possible. So the only time features go away is when they can't technically be supported anymore. Um but then I was thinking about this, how how often do people actually launch binaries with the file manager?
0: I think it's more common to a group of people that this is going to most negatively impact and that's new users that get switched to Linux or people that are buying commercial software. Uh, I, I've definitely noticed the folks that I've helped move to Linux, they have like this habit of Google searching and then going and downloading the deb or downloading a binary file. Or, or like when you buy something from GOG. Right, I can see that. Or like I use
1: this program. Oh, they have Linux. I'm finally on Linux. They gave me a tarball.
0: What do I do with this? Yeah,
1: yeah.
3: So a deb, no. a deb isn't executable though, right? You double click right. a deb and it launches something else that handles right. the installation or you double click an image or...
0: I'm just commenting on the behavior. That's just the, the behavior. I think the instinct, the instinct for your Windows users is to download things off of the vendor's website, whoever that vendor might be.
2: Right. But even those, pe- those crazy lunatic third party <laughs> app developers create desktop files. And launchers and like, if you download, like, let's say for example, a simple example like Telegram. If you go and get Telegram from their website, there's a simple executable. You run it once, and then you've got an icon forevermore on your in your launcher, your menu. Or right.
0: Your Same with a GOG game. You know, I bought that new uh, fancy looking space game. I can't remember what it's called. Oh, space! But game. it looks really good. And uh, it's a bin file that downloads, and then when you double click it it then launches a GTK installer, and that does create a .desktop file and all that kind of stuff. But you got to double-click that .bin file to get that GTK installer to create the desktop file.
2: But is the, is the, the ultimate goal of this in the GNOME project to uh, break the habit of these bad patterns of downloading something from the internet and then just double-clicking it and expecting it to work and it not be full of malware?
0: Maybe, yeah. I mean, I think it's. I think you could make a pretty solid security argument from that standpoint. And you could argue if they feel the code isn't up to snuff that they shouldn't be maintaining it. You could just make base the argument off of that.
1: It, it does kind of remind me too of some of the, you know, uh, maybe like a Chrome, Chrome OS type environment or iOS, where these newer environments yes. that were designed in the world we have now don't have some of these legacy things. But people who are familiar enough with the file system, familiar enough with yeah, just like running binaries, feels like a big loss. I don't really ever do this. I guess the one area, it kind of sucks for app images, maybe. Yeah. But yeah other yeah. than that, it doesn't really
0: affect me. I guess I, I just don't agree that you can change user behavior this way. I don't think this ever works. I think you just piss off users. And I think what you're going to have filter is... filter your base then, right? And you're going to have distros that are just going to ship another extension. Just like they're shipping extensions now to restore desktop icons, or they're shipping extensions now to restore tray icons. Now they're going to be shipping an extension to execute binary files. That's likely the the biggest impact is that it'll just be now the work of the distribution maintainers. Or
2: they'll hold back the version of Nautilus that right. has this patched out and patch it back in again.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah, maybe. <clears throat> I have a link to the mailing list discussion. I'd say give it a read and and give the team some slack to just figure this stuff out. Like the world hasn't fallen apart with the removal of desktop icons from GNOME three two eight. True. We're still yep. here, we're, still, ho- we're ho- still holding good and people that really need it have extensions. I think also there's like, yeah, people have ext- extensions and if
1: you're listening to this program, you probably know that there's a bunch of other fine desktops. So, you know, if we're having this debate in the context of like what should the new user experience be or the standard, that's one thing. But for a lot of us, we, we just don't have to care because there's lots of choice.
0: Hobie, are you still rocking Firefox as your daily driver of you caved to Chrome? Yep. All right. Yep, yep. No, uh, here. the only reason really? I use
2: Chrome is to talk to Wimpy on a daily basis because <laughs> uh, the video chat thing we use only works in Chrome.
0: Yeah,
3: I and have I've, And I've, I've made a, an Electron app of the video conferencing tool we make so I don't have to have Chrome or Chromium installed anymore. How do
0: you you make an Electron app of any rando website? I would love to know that.
3: I will send you a link in IRC to the Ubuntu tutorial guide that explains how to do it.
0: Thank you, because I have a similar situation. I have one app that I I have to use Chrome for. Yeah, That's a great app. We should do that. I know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So Firefox is just getting better and better. And uh, Beta 61 and uh, the Nightly 62 have a new sync system that is going to address sort of the, some of all of the complaints, actually, I've really ever had with Firefox bookmarks. Hey, this is something, their sync system with Firefox bookmarks has always sort of been a, a retrofitted solution where Chrome was sort of engineered from the game. Right, yep. And now, now Firefox, the team over at Mozilla that creates Firefox for iOS, has quite a bit of experience with this because when they created Firefox for iOS, they created it with syncing in mind. And they created this whole JSON system, and they created this dual database system of your active bookmarks and the synced bookmarks, and even a third database of, of, for conflict resolution. And then they had a really great system for keeping it all straight and keeping track of everything. And when they when they engineered this, they looked back at their Firefox desktop sync engine and said, well, how could we apply lessons learned to the iOS sync engine to the desktop? And that's now essentially what they're doing. They're going to have a mirror and a merger database. They're going to have a, they're going to have um, more of an iOS inspired. It's not a direct three database, like one for one re-implementation of the iOS system because there is just historical legacy things they have to support. But in a sense, they're going to be building into Firefox a shadow bookmarking system that will be kept syncing separately from your primary bookmarks. And that's where it will work out like merging of conflicts or uh, other issues that crop up when you're syncing bookmarks or adding new items or editing existing items. And that will be happening much faster in the background, and it has a graceful way to get out when there's a conflict that it can't figure out.
1: So then, this is just sort of a new a new system being being added, bolted on that will take the same data and do better things with it.
0: Yeah, exactly. And they're starting to roll it out in sixty one and sixty two in different phases. I have those details linked uh, in in the show notes. If you wanna if you wanna read the whole post, if you're if you're a big Firefox fan and you're curious about this battle and why it's sort of been a little clunky. Uh, They even identify uh, some of the issues that I thought I was just crazy. I thought these were just problems that I had. And now I'm seeing Mozilla just say, the list is pretty, pretty damning there. You're right. Like, uh, yeah, it doesn't make you confident. No, bookmarks would be duplicated, lost or reordered. I have absolutely experienced the reordered thing. Uh, And uh, folders with different contents would get smushed together. New bookmarks wouldn't make their way to all devices, causing them to gradually fall out of sync. And moves would be partially or completely undone at times. There you go. Yeah. Right. Wow. And I thought I was just using it wrong. Uh, And I thought Chrome did it a lot better. That was one of the things that first drew me to Chrome. I went back. I feel like it's been pretty solid, but I've also kind of reduced how much I use bookmarks. Same. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to to these changes.
1: Definitely should check the article out. I thought it was a great level of... There's a lot of technical details yeah. without too much. There's not a ton of code, but they talk about the advanced right. designs of the system. So,
0: And it, it's, it's also worth mentioning, recently I've gotten a little more critical about the way Mozilla communicates. It's very corporate heavy. And it's sort of a turnoff to, I think, a lot of members of the open source and free right. software communities. And so reading that, I'd say it was very clear. It was technical. Felt like it was written to us. Mm-hmm. I liked that a lot. I liked that. Uh, and if you want to go uh, read that whole thing, go to linuxunplug.com slash 249, and we'll have a link in there. I've talked a lot on this show about LVFS and the whole firmware update mechanism that I first experienced on an XPS 13 running Fedora, and then later different distributions, including Arch. And it was just so exciting. Yeah, you're in the software updates, and you go to the updates, and you're like, what? There's a new firmware update? Crazy. And then we really saw the value of having that system when Spectre and Meltdown were announced. Yeah. And... Uh, This uh, this system LVFS is uh, is sort of um, it's a Red Hat project that is attempting to be distro and vendor neutral. We've covered a lot in the past. Richard Hughes is the primary developer behind it. Uh, I think he's done some great work, and I love the idea of something that's cross vendor, so Lenovo or Dell could participate in it, and you can be on Arch, Fedora, or Ubuntu, and you're getting these. Doesn't matter, yeah, right? Yeah, that's that's great. So I've always been I've always been a fan of well, let's get LVFS in all of the places. And so that's why I think – and I think other people have felt that way too. And there was some interest in what was System76 going to be doing. Now that they have Pop! OS and that they'll be building their own hardware soon, what is their intention to participate in the LVFS program? And then it came out that in in the background there had been some communication between System76 and the project. It's not like they they weren't aware of it, right? Right. But nothing of major substance that uh, like had really progressed anything beyond like, hey, can we do this? How does this work? Things like that. Uh, and it seems like uh, things just sort of faded out. There was some rumors that, yeah, they started talking to us from the LVFS LVFS camp, but uh, we haven't heard anything. And then s- about a year went by, and Richard Hughes posted a blog post where um, the crux of it is this isn't going anywhere. They're not going to use our project. They're going to do their own update mechanism that uh, they've created Okay. And uh, if you want somebody who supports LVFS, you know, go get an XPS 13. And uh, Carl took to the System76 blog and wrote a kind of line-by-line response where he says, we reached out to Richard over a year ago. We were enthusiastic about LVFS and interested in whether or not it would work for us. Once we described how we needed to del- deliver our firmware, we were told that it would not work well and would likely not be acceptable to Red Hat Legal. And they kind of post a snippet of the issue. Uh, Richard Hughes says, "I don't think this will work for us because there's no way to reference a flashing tool in the XML or sign an executable on LVFS. I don't think Red Hat Legal will like the idea of shipping the flashing program. We only ever talked about the firmware files themselves. Although I concede the images in the .cap file probably contain firmware executable code wrapped up in layers. <laughs> yeah, fair enough." He says, I also know that Red Hat security team would do more than just blink when we tell them that we want to ship an untrusted, non-free binary, which would run as root on RHEL customers' machines. Uh, so that's the snippet of the conversation that why Richard Hughes says, I don't think this is going to work for you. It's kind of, I, I believe, I, uh, that at that point in the conversation, things just died off. System76 is like, well, obviously this isn't going to work for us. We'll focus on what we need to focus on. They're you know, they were also launching Pop! OS around this time, and they have plenty of things that yeah. they're doing. Uh, and so he also, Carl mentions in his blog post, that the update cap- capsule mechanism that that LVFS uses wouldn't work for over a decade of machines that System76 has in the field. And uh, without Update Capsule and with Update Capsule as well, it wraps everything in a binary blob. So you can't really pull it apart and reverse engineer firmwares. And they don't like that aspect of it as well. Carl outlines a few other uh, c- uh, concerns in his blog post, but I, I kind of wanted to uh, reach out to Carl and ask him a couple of direct questions. Because uh, there's been some that I think have been rattling around the internet that we'd like answers to. So I sent Carl an email, and he got back to me this morning uh, pretty promptly, actually. And I asked him, I said, uh, is one of the core problems with System76 using LVFS is that it's not really compatible with its upstream OEM agreements that System76 has in place with, like, say, Clevo or whoever that might be upselling the parts. Carl responds to that System76 has no upstream agreements limiting anything we can do to deliver firmware to our customers. This is made up. We were told in the email we posted that LVFS would technically be incompatible and would likely not be acceptable to Red Hat Legal. We needed to still provide the functionality, so we built our own tool. Uh, Which I – okay. Fair enough. So he says that there isn't an agreement. There is no agreement in place that limits how they redistribute firmware is what he said. Uh, And I said, just to clarify, uh, if customers choose to buy a stock Ubuntu machine from System76, not one running Pop! OS, will they still get updated? He said, correct, any Ubuntu-based distro will work, of course. We also had customers use the update tool on Arch. Nice, yeah, okay. Uh, And I said, uh, in the future, when you're building your own systems, like your own desktops, uh, do you intend to use LVFS at that point? And uh, he said uh, that... uh, that their first in-house design and manufactured desktop will feature open-source firmware components. So they, they don't need to be reverse-engineered, so the update capsule thing isn't. Uh, but they'll still use their existing infrastructure and tools to distribute the firmwares when they're building their own systems. Um, and so, you know, he's. Uh, I think it's pretty clear in here. This is just a simply a matter of this is what works for us. It wasn't really a statement on the LVFS project it's just not a solution that's necessarily going to work for us right now, and uh, he would have. He would have. I think I got from my back and forth with him. He would have preferred to just leave it at that. Um, yeah, I mean, I wish there was a mechanism for these different groups to communicate better. Like, I, it's funny we have like all these different platforms: Twitter and email and IRC and Slack and Telegram that everybody in our community uses pretty regularly, and yet. Like these like it, it feels like it, we end up talking past each other. Way more than we should. In yeah. blog posts. In blog posts, right? And I really respect Richard too. I think what Richard works on what Richard is working on is really important for a first class. Linux user experience where you don't have to sit there and do the distro math and wonder if there's a PPA for that system. And you just know that if you get a modern system, you can, when you go to get all your updates, you get your firmware update. I like that. I like that too. And there's probably a lot of different ways system 76 could crack that particular egg and, you know, maybe they could deliver it that way as well. Uh, it's sort of unfortunate though, that we end up getting these lobs thrown back and forth at each other. I, in, in another world, I almost would like to like give people a I maybe mean, maybe this is something we could do. I almost would like to give people like a space to just talk it out, <laughs> you know, yeah, right? because yeah. like you get people talking and it just is everything's Let's hash fine. let it out now yeah. and then
1: not have to keep talking about it. And we can stop covering it on the show <laughs> and everyone will be happier.
0: Yeah, it just seems like that would be a lot nicer.
1: Do you think there's any? Um, was there any in the reaction? Any sort of? open source community frustration just with with Pop or with feelings about that System 76 may be motivated to do this for some of their you know not appreciating forking when they don't
0: need it. That's an interesting to. question. Yeah. I think that is a bit of it. I think where Richard Hughes comes in is I saw some of his follow-up comments on Google Plus. He's a little disappointed because the idea here is is this is sort of like the community thing to do. This is the the mm-hmm. Linux You know, this is like a good Linux hardware citizen thing to do, I think, is the thinking. And so there was a level of disappointment on his part that System76 wasn't interested in participating in that larger ecosystem, even if it meant sort of reinventing the wheel a bit. Because some other manufacturers are redoing the way that they do all of this process, too. Um, And I think that is a point you could argue maybe that's not necessarily true and uh, because uh, perhaps you could argue that LVFS is not as independent as it right. as it would need to be for that to actually happen it also
1: strikes me that like it's a good it's great that system 76 is taking this seriously and maybe if you know a lot of other vendors had been doing this Yes, it would be a worse world where we had a whole bunch of independent Linux flashing programs. But imagine that, like if if for years you'd be able to easily flash firmware from whatever big name vendor. That just wasn't the world that we lived in. It's cool that it's changing now, but I can understand why they're like, guys, we've been shipping this for like 10 years. We just have to support our our machines.
0: Yeah, the machines we already have in the field. Let's take a moment and thank Linux Academy. LinuxAcademy.com/unplugged. Go there and sign up for a free seven-day trial of a platform that's built to teach you more about Linux with full-time human beings that can help you whenever you get stuck. And when you're not asking them questions, they're always improving, adding, and updating content. They have a course scheduler that works with your busy schedule and helps set learning goals, and then helps you stick to those timeframes. They have s- cloud servers that they spin up on demand when you need them as part of the courseware. You can SSH into those systems and they're really cool. You can set the distro, and the courseware matches that. And they also have practice exams and quizzes to help prepare you for certifications and tests to make sure you really have learned what you think you've learned before you go take the big test. Yeah. They also have iOS and Android apps so you can study while you're going. They have lesson audio and study guides that you can download and take with you, and they have rolled out a big batch of content in the last month and it's still coming too it's it's impressive they, there's so much to cover that they've been doing live streams to just try to bring everybody up to date on wow. all of the stuff because it's so much it's hard to keep track of how much you don't even much. want
1: to read all the stuff that they have yeah. just offer, let alone all the actual material yes
0: yeah, so, and they're updating old stuff as well so the old material is staying current it's it's a great, great service, and you can try it seven days for free. But when you go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged, go sign up for a free seven-day trial and support the show, linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. I, I, I like that sound effect. I like that, too. You should you should keep it going. So if I say GS Connect, does it ring a bell? Does that ring a bell at all, GS Connect? Well, it does Connect?
1: make me think of KDE Connect. You
0: got it, Wes. That's right. Uh, it is the Gnome shell implementation of KDE Connect. Oh. Yeah, without the cute. I'm interested. No cute or KDE dependencies and KDE Connect of course is that awesome awesome tool that allows you to use uh, to, uh, basically make your Android phone a compare, uh, companion to your plasma desktop and now your gnome desktop with js connect cop you can share clipboards you can get notifications moved between them you can use it as a remote control i mean there's a, you could transfer awesome. files there's a lot a lot of stuff and you got to figure uh, it's a it's a feature that microsoft is eyeing they've talked a, l- a little bit at uh, build about um, the new timeline feature in Windows 10 that requires like a special launcher on Android to make it all work, wow. where none of this is required with uh, GS Connect. And so uh, this, uh, this guy, this random guy, Will Cook, some guy on the internet, uh, he, uh, he has proposed that uh, Ubuntu should integrate GS Connect as part of 18.10. I think it's a great That's idea. That's Awesome. And uh, so he's put out there for conversation on the Ubuntu community portal, Hub. What do we call it, Popey? Is it uh, it Hub? Hub. Hub. And uh, asked for folks uh, to give input and uh, has uh, even uh, named people that are volunteering to do some of the work. I think this would be a great and useful tool, and it'd be a nice feature on the side of the box like they used to say. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I would certainly use it. So if you want to get in on the conversation around that, I'll have a link in the show notes. And then a little birdie dropped off uh, a, a new snap.
1: New snap right um, on the doorstep of the show. It? What this is morning. it?
0: I'm dying to know. Well, you know how we're big fans of the FFMpeg project. Oh, here. love it! And you know what, FFMpeg could always use a little more of hardware acceleration. <gasps> always, but you can't do that in a snap, right, Wimpy? That's not possible. It is now. Oh, oh boy, dish! You got a dish.
3: So this is something we've had brewing for a little while. Um, you, you will have heard um, Poppy and I talking about the fact that. Um, OBS is able to use an accelerated FFmpeg that's in the Ubuntu 18.04 archive, which is terrific. So people who want NVNC and HEVC and what have you. That's all available. But as is, you know, common, the 18.04 release comes out. We're shipping the latest stable release of FFmpeg. And then days later, FFmpeg 4 drops. And we've now got an 18.04 release, which is never going to see that new version of FFmpeg. So what we've been working on is a snap of FFmpeg, which is FFmpeg 4, with the and HEVC uh, pieces enabled, so you have the hardware acceleration. We've also done the work to build in the uh, VA API stuff, so there's a hardware-accelerated encoding and decoding for Intel and AMD as well. And all of the bits that FFmpeg relies on Are all built from the current versions of source parts so Mm. the whole stack of ffmpeg is all the latest stuff inside the snap that snap is currently classic um, because it's ffmpeg itself and it sort of makes sense that maybe ffmpeg the tool should remain a classic snap because there's many different different ways people would want to use it Mm. but that snap's only 20 meg so it's very small wow yeah
0: I'm really excited. I could take it. that anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: And um, what we've um, what we've been doing is we've figured out how to confine FFmpeg and open up access to the uh, NVENC socket. And what this will enable us to do is in snaps like OBS and Caden Live, embed the bleeding edge versions of FFmpeg with all of the acceleration turned on inside those applications so they don't have to go looking at the host which may have an old version they can have the current latest versions with all of the acceleration features right enabled.
0: boy that's going to be great this is for incredible. them incredible and they'll know exactly that everywhere that it ships will have that version of fmpeg which is going to be great for katie and live i mean that's one of the biggest challenges for doing video editing on linux is that people have different parts underneath of different versions. And so you can say my Cadian live crashes and it comes back with, okay, what version of this and what version of that do you have? And this solves that that's available
3: now in the stable channel, uh, in the future, we'll be doing a bit more with the Intel and AMD acceleration. And a little project I'm interested in looking at is, um, we've now got the capability within, um, snaps when they're being built to make architecture decisions in the build process. So you can say, when I'm on an AMD64 machine, do these things differently than when I'm on an ARM oh. device. And what I'm planning to do is bring some work I did on the Raspberry Pi uh, last year where I made an FFmpeg that was specifically tuned for hardware accelerated encoding and decoding on the Raspberry Pi. Bring that into the same snap so that when you're building on ARMhf it automatically turns on all of those Raspberry Pi optimizations. Hmm. So the same snap will be the accelerated version for the different devices.
0: You are doing the work of many editors out there. They are going to appreciate that very, very much. They're going to save so many folks time that would have had to figure out how to get that working individually on each one of their systems. Can you imagine the difference
1: just a couple of years ago, trying to put that all together? Maybe you're manually compiling things or sketchy PPAs, and (laughs) now it's just a couple of snaps.
0: Yep. Yeah. Okay, so while we're on this subject of Snaps, there's a big story floating around, huge story, massive controversy, shaking everything to its core. (laughs) So big! There was malware found in the Snap Store, and as a response, there's been a post up on the blog.ubuntu.com talking about future steps that will be taken to secure, to a degree, the Snap Store. And there was one bit in here that really jumped out at me. Um, and Will Cook talked a little bit about this on the recent Late Night Linux, too. Uh, they say on the roadmap, they have an interesting security feature in the works that will improve the safety of the system and also the experience of people handling software deployments in servers and desktops. Uh, a simple but fairly effective feature that we are working on is the ability to flag specific publishers as verified. Okay. Uh, the details of that will be announced soon, but the basic idea is that it's easy for users to identify that the person or organization publishing that snap or are who they claim to be. Uh, And so, though, would that have solved this? So what happened? So let me back up a little bit. Yeah, lay Lay down. There was uh, a a video game in the Snap Store. I think it claimed to be a version of that 2048 game everybody loves. And uh, when you get that there game, it was actually doing a little crypto mining in the background. Surprise, surprise.
1: Well, of course. That's, that's what you got to do these days.
0: So it's uh, it's an interesting use of, I guess, what you could call malware. It was really more like uh, cryptoware um, because it's in this confined snap, but it can still use your CPU resources and do mining. Just raises your power bill. Yeah, so it's behaving in a way that was unexpected to the user, uh, but they could have been a verified publisher.
1: Right, and with the verification does that speak at all to like the procedures, do they how do they keep their keys? Safe? You know, all those sorts of things that would actually also impact
0: that. Yeah, maybe we'll get details on that. But that's about as much as I know. I'm sure our friends uh, Popey or Wimpy would have more insights on this particular topic. It's been it's been kind of interesting, but it, it all could have been more of a shitstorm. It's been kind of a mild shitstorm, but not that bad. So what's what's been the piece the, that people what is the have missed?
2: Of a mild shitstorm.
0: Well, I don't know. From where I've sat, I could have seen it could have been a lot worse. But you were at, you were more at the heart of the storm, so I'm curious if you have yeah. the same impression. So, whenever
2: something like this happens, and I'm not not talking about you know whenever we regularly get malware arriving. I'm, I'm talking about <laughs> whenever there's whenever there's a problem in Ubuntu, and you know we see the community reacting in some way. Um, we all jump to it. And there are people, you know, you could think of the Avengers around the world, you know, all coming together in order to resolve this problem. And I know <laughs> that, that a whole bunch of people in Canonical f- care very deeply about this problem and wanted to get it solved. So someone alerted us to the fact that there was an application in the store and the application did something other than what it said it did in the description, right? That's effectively what it was. It's as simple as that. Someone said, this is a game. It's 2048 or Hextris or... There was actually half a dozen, mm-hmm. five, uh, four or five applications mm-hmm. from the same author and they all did the same thing. Um, they were, in inverted commas, masquerading as one thing but doing something else. Um, they weren't stealing data. They weren't like grabbing data off your machine and sending it off to some third party. They were basically using your CPU in order to mine some kind of cryptocurrency. And at the point when we found out about this, I think it was early on a Saturday morning, uh, the weekend just gone. And I was standing in a field watching my son play football. I know Martin was in the middle of a forest with his family. Other people were spending time with their families on a Saturday morning and everyone jumped to it. Telegram lit up. IRC channels lit up. We all jumped on it. We all pinged all the right people, phoned the emergency numbers, and made sure that those applications were yanked from the store as soon as possible. So we did exactly the right thing as soon as we were alerted or as soon as we figured out that there was something wrong. We pulled these apps from the stores and um, and then started a plan of investigation and uh, debugging what the applications were actually doing to make sure that... Um, you know, this doesn't happen again mm-hmm. um, and you know, we can plan for the future to make sure that people are more aware of what's going on.
0: Yeah, and so do you think this verified program would have fixed this particular problem since he did have a few other apps in the store? He may have been considered verified at that point, no? Well, the verified
2: there, there is no verified program at the moment so right, yes. i couldn't possibly say if it would or wouldn't fix it because okay. i don't okay. know what form that verified program will take okay we've we've discussed this a number of times at canonical and it was most recently raised a couple of weeks ago uh, the snap team were at a sprint uh recently and it's a hard problem to solve it's not straightforward you know you, you even if you have someone who is whether they are verified or they're not, it's not a magic bullet that stops someone from doing something nefarious. Sure, right? yeah. Right. You you have to be able to keep an eye on these things, monitor what's going on, and react fast when when things do go wrong. Like if you look at any of the other app stores, Windows Mobile App Store, iOS App Store, Mac App Store, Windows Desktop App Store, Android App Store, they've all had some kind of occasion that something has been put in the store that Users might feel aggrieved at uh, in one way or another, whether it's you know too many pop-up adverts or crypto mining or uh, something else. There's everyone's had this; it's a rite of passage for any app store. Really, <laughs> yeah. you know, we've we've hit that now, um, and yeah, we're going to have to come up with ways in which we can. Uh, Ensure that users have confidence that the applications that are coming from the developers, they can have some level of confidence that that's a a valid application. Um, One thing that we're trying to do with the Snap Store is not that you should trust us, Canonical, or Ubuntu, is that you should trust the developer. It's the developer who's pushing their stuff in the store. The code is coming from their GitHub repository. You should be able to go and have a look at their GitHub repository. You should be able to interrogate the snap and figure out where did this come from, who made it, what's inside it, right? You should be confident that the thing you're installing on your computer is what it says it is. And we've got some work to do there because right now we don't, we don't make it obvious where the source of the snap came from. So there's certainly some things we can do to improve. Maybe verification will help as well.
0: Yeah, it obviously, will be a process uh, that will that. Uh, I'm I'm curious to see when the details come out. Congrats on being a real software <laughs> store now. <but. laughs> yeah, it's it is a challenge, especially if you're going to take if you're going to allow submissions from the general public, uh, which you you know you can kind of offset to a degree by the fact that they are contained or confined. I guess I should say right. And the, and the other thing is,
2: it's worth noting that. When we reacted, we reacted really fast, like faster than most stores react. So when we were told within a couple of hours, it's yanked from the store, so no new users could download that application. What we also did was made sure that any users who currently had the application, we pushed out an update to those users that removed the component that's still in progress that removes the component that that does the nefarious stuff so they end up with you know the game and not the malware that that came along with it so we've we didn't we didn't just leave that software on people's computers but equally we didn't reach out to everyone's computers and delete the software from their computers it's a fine line to To walk between Mm. saying well you made the choice to to install this software tough and the amazon way which was to reach out to people's kindles and delete a book from your kindle right yeah we we didn't want to do that we wanted to leave the software but remove the bit that was bad so we it, it was very a very delicate line and balance to walk
0: yeah i hadn't thought about that that that's i'm glad you mentioned that uh so now now we wait for the details down the road. I'm, I'm, I appreciate that little tidbit about verified. I think that is a good a good idea. I mean, and it shows that the, these are concerns, right? That. that take
1: it seriously, and that goes a long way. Some of the developers that have applications in the store, we have
2: you know one to one relationships with. So some of the applications, like those which are classic snaps, like many of the popular code editors. Um, And things like Skype, you know, people are a little bit concerned that they're classic snaps. Being a classic snap, it means it has full access to your system, right? Mm -hmm. Very much like a deb does when it's being installed. And so people have a little concern there. And and we go through a vetting process uh, for classic snaps uh, where we vet the developer who has access to the snap and make sure it correlates to the upstream developer who owns the application. So
0: there's additional... um Scrutiny applied right. to classic we, snaps. We
2: already do that scrutiny for classic snaps, and perhaps that will be part of what we do for our further verification
0: processes. Sure. But like I say, we haven't we mm-hmm. haven't figured out the details mm-hmm. of of it. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that insights because that, no that's that's it's very interesting to hear the behind the scenes aspect of watching it from the outside. Of course, people jumped on the bandwagon, but you're right. This does, it is almost a rite of passage to a degree. And it's not necessarily even a new type of threat vector. We've had rando uh, repositories that people have been adding to their sources list for years, PPAs that you plug into a system. I think there's always just going to be this conflict, right? It's either you have a super lockdown store where you don't have
1: all the apps you want, or it's easy to publish new software, and it's great, and there are just more (laughs) risks.
0: Yeah, and the verified step, and perhaps others will help. Um, All right, Well, I want to move on to uh, our friends over at the Plasma Camp who were doing a little get-together in Berlin, Germany. And some of the folks there gathered to discuss the forthcoming 5.13 release and, of course, the future of Plasma and Wayland itself. But this time with a twist – one of the members of the Sway window manager team joined them to talk Wayland input methods and a bunch of other things. It looks like there was some really fruitful stuff coming out of this. Drew DeVault, the lead developer of the Sway window manager, joined the Plasma Sprint to discuss where Wayland protocols could be shared between the projects. Wow. Right. Brilliant! Uh, The team looked at their layer protocol, which covers much of the work the current plasma of the current plasma shell protocol. We found that this protocol contains some nice ideas and suggested some improvements for the sway window manager developers as well. The plasma output management protocol was also discussed. Now, get this thing: this protocol defines how external monitors are used, and sway currently just reloads config files. So the sway team is going to consider using the plasma output management protocol. So the two projects are using the same thing for external monitors. That would be nice. This this alleviates some of my big concerns I have about the uh, the path to Wayland, and I'm really glad to see this. There was also some talks about remote access and using PipeWire because that's the that's the route that right, this staking. is exactly the thing that we were like, well, we'll probably we'll need this in Wayland, and it's happening, so that's good. Is really good. Um, they also had uh, some new uh, work on the new input stack for Cute uh, because there's a bunch of other developers nice. there as well. And uh, Sean, I think you're, I think I'm going to butcher this Rutledge. Going to go for that. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're in the I ballpark. Think I think this time you got it right. Yeah. Well, he's the lead developer of Qt's new input stack, and he joined the sprint for a few days to work on uh, and review the new API. Uh, and this is really all about putting Wayland first. And say they, they said they got some nice parts in that were uh, that were improved, and things went surprisingly smooth. And the Plasma browser integration got uh, final touches for 5.13, which will be released next month. Now, the Plasma browser integration means that Firefox and Chrome, and Chromium browsers, will use Plasma's file transfer widget for downloads and the native Plasma notifications for browser notifications. And more importantly for me... Uh, The media controls in your task manager will work for browser tabs and stuff. So you can mute. Love that Plasma Mm -hmm. manager. (laughs) It's nice. So lots of stuff there. Uh, Translations as well getting fixed up, uh, other kinds of things, and uh, some work on uh, the Falcon web browser and getting it feature parity in terms of uh, uh, Plasma integration like the other browsers. So some good stuff uh, coming out of the uh, Plasma sprint in Berlin. It's nice to see that. Huge, huge fan now these days. I'm all about it. I've just con, I've just really come become quite the uh plasma fan. You're boy. biased. We know. I really am. It's it's been working so rock solid for
1: me. I appreciate your restraint. You only put in this one story <laughs> here. That takes a lot of self control.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna get you to switch eventually. Popey and I, we're still rocking it. We're still rocking it, right? Yeah, Popey, you're still there, yes? Yeah, totally. Totally. All day every day. Oh really? Boom. Really? Yeah. Uh so, so, so it's an almost believable yeah. <laughs> okay,
2: so I have two computers. My main computer runs Unity on 1804, but the laptop that I go walking around with, my T450, that runs KDE on. I have to point out, still the same install I did yeah. just after I came back from your place, and it's still rocking. I love it.
0: I don't want to steal his story, because he might share it on air, but Noah has a hilarious story that is a true tribute to how stable... KDE Neon was for him. Uh, long story short, he never rebooted since the initial install. He just been using it and sleeping his laptop, which uh, bit him in the arse in a major way, but I'll leave him I'll leave it Whoa. to him because it's it's too nice. funny of a story for me to share for him. I won't take it from him, but it's it's a good one and it it's been the same thing for him, super rock solid. We're still running on all of the studio systems here, so it's great just to just see the team getting together in person to put that final polish on uh, 513. I think that really makes a big difference for some of these teams. So it's nice to see them have a chance to be able to do that. We have much, 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 much more to get into, still lots to discuss. So let's take a moment and thank DigitalOcean. Go to do.co slash unplugged where you will get a $100 credit at DigitalOcean when you sign up with a new account. That lasts for 60 days and gives you a chance to try out DigitalOcean. Everything's based on super fast enterprise grade SSDs. It's designed for developers, but it works for human beings. They have a dashboard that's so good You might call it a dashboard for days. And now they have new flexible droplets where you can mix and match resources that are the most appropriate for your application. do.co slash unplugged. They have private networking. If you want to have something in the back end like a database or a cache, they have block storage that you can add to your system as you need it. I just put 250 gigs on. The oh, way. big spender, but not really. It's, it's, not that bad. It's, it's pretty reasonably priced for what you get. Yeah. So for an example, my favorite rig, three cents an hour. What? Yeah. And that's a significantly fast rig too. It's probably more resources than I really need most of the time. And you can get A $100 credit when you go to do.co slash unplugged. They have a great API that's clearly documented, easy to follow. And because of that, there's tons of really good open source code already written. You can integrate it into your Linux desktop, like control your droplets. You can get apps for your phone. You can get command line scripts. You can get libraries for your favorite programming language. I mean, the whole spectrum is covered for DigitalOcean. Plus, they have a ton of great distributions. All of the real distributions you'd probably want to put on a server to begin with, plus that free BSD. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Wow. So go check it out, do.co slash unplugged. Get the $100 credit and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Unplugged program, do.co slash unplugged. So with the release of 1804, we've seen a disappointing trend of clickbait to try to make or manufacture, you might say, some drama around the, quote, data collection services in Ubuntu 18.04. And uh, even the name is is sort of, <laughs> it's sort of over-dramatizing yeah, what this is. If you install Ubuntu 18.04, at the end, there's a screen that comes up that says, what's new in Ubuntu? And at the end of that screen, it talks about data collection, and it shows you an example of the data collection. We're going to go over one of those reports in a moment, but I've noticed a trend, particularly with YouTube. I, and I hate to come on here and be like, you know, Chris yells at YouTube once again. Old man Chris is back. But it's pretty disappointing because um, it plays to a well trained, sort of knee jerk response that's in the audience to respond badly to anything about data collection. Because of all of the Facebook stuff, all of the Google stuff that we all know, NSA collection, like we've, for, since Edward Snowden, it's we've been years now. We've had it drilled into us that everybody's spying on us. Windows 10 launched with all these metrics. It's just been drilled into us that spying equals bad, data equals bad. But the reality is, if you're deploying a large-scale operating system, you have to have some insights into your customer base. You have to. You want that feedback cycle, yeah. And so there's a line to be walked here. and I think canonical has walked it really well because they could have gone further than they did. Essentially, what happens when you when you opt into this data collection is is you generate a report about your system. And I'll have a I'll have an example report linked in the show notes. And what it does is it collects things like the version of Ubuntu that you just installed, the type of processor that you have, the type of GPU with the vendor and model number just like they would be in an Xorg report. Nothing fancy. It's not like it's a super in-depth thing here. Your screen resolution, if you have live patch or auto log on, turned on, the desktop environment, and if you're using Wayland or X then your time zone, the media that you use to install, like the ISO. Uh, if you if you use the minimal install, um, and uh, that's essentially it. There's a couple of other basics in here, like did you download updates during the install? That's the data that can d- en-
1: It's really quite harmless.
0: And also, if you choose not to participate in the data collection, there is a one-time ping. It's All of this is just a JSON file in clear text that you can read yourself. You can just open it up and read it. And it's clear. And there's a one-time ping that's sent to Canonical that says user did not opt into data collection. There's no IP, no identifiable information. Uh, Will Cook stated they don't even store the IP address of the HTTP connection on in the, the Apache on the server logs. side. Yeah, right. It's just a, they they opted out. So that way they have a metric to know how many people are choosing not to use this program, so they can have idea of right, how popular. Yeah, exactly. So you know how many total installs are happening. But that doesn't stop people from attempting to generate controversy because that generates clicks and views and ad dollars. And if you look at the comments on a couple of these different YouTube videos, people are all in on this stuff. They're all in on it because they are just looking at that word data collection and they're freaking out. And the problem is, is that it actually handicaps Canonical's ability to really figure out What's popular? Like, for example, 64-bit versus 32-bit. How many of their users are actually using 32-bit processors? Or how many of them are installing a 32-bit version of the OS on 64-bit capable hardware? Yeah, That simple plain text data file tells them that. That's, that's a pretty valuable piece of information that could save them tons of engineering time. Well, and also it could be very difficult to get that
1: feedback other ways. You often see right, that, that minority communities are they're going to communicate a lot more. And you get it's hard to get a sense of just what a, a lot of bland default users who don't care to give feedback
0: to Canonical, this is a way that they can be sampled in that user base. Producer Michael responded on one of the videos. He said, I completely disagree with this video being made because none of the collection is a negative thing. The initial data collection of Ubuntu report, of it's Ubuntu dash report, by the way, when you choose not to send info, only sends that you chose not to send info. The removal of the package merely to not tell them actually skews the data Because it lowers the amount of people who will be continued and counted as not participating. So these videos are advising, uninstall this package. So that way you don't have anything ever sent to them. Never even a ping. Wow. But the problem is, is then Canonical has no metric to know how unpopular this is. So producer Michael goes on. If you wanted them to know you dislike it, then you have to send them the info that you opted out. They have to have that information. The reason it was made automatic and opt-out is because most people dismiss the pop-ups and close it anyways. The other aspect is there's some bug data collection that will automatically get sent to the Mm -hmm. background Mm -hmm. that does contain more information, but again, that's critical information that every commercial desktop operating system is collecting. Um, And that's really my piece on this, is I think this is actually an example of how open source media can be, or free software coverage, or whatever label you want to apply to it, can actually be destructive to the movement because it it creates fear and uncertainty and doubt about something that is very vanilla and very clear. You actually, when you finish the first time run wizard of 1804, you can click a button and it will show you what it's going to send. So you can review all of it. We, we also kind of waste an opportunity to, you know, interact with the,
1: with the developers with the organizations in the community, right? I mean, Ubuntu, I think, has been very clear about what their purposes were. There was a long period of assessment before this feature got included. So you don't have to pretend it's some monolithic corporation. It's not Oracle we're talking about where you have to assume the worst. Why can't we have a good faith discussion about this? Maybe people don't like it for legitimate reasons. Let's not start it from a bunch of posturing videos that haven't bothered to have a conversation.
0: And Gambus, do you think it's also something that software developers have more appreciation for than, say, an average user?
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, I've been developing some applications for, uh, Linux, for Linux desktop and uh, they, they are quite specific and uh, many times it happened that uh, people just reported, oh, this thing doesn't work and I, I don't know what's going on and I, I just tried troubleshooting and spend uh, many hours trying to get information about the hardware when, uh, if I just add in some, uh, user profiling, well, not, not the user profiling, but some, um, information for that's useful for developers, just like Canonical is doing, I would have had a much easier life trying to troubleshoot all these issues. And I think this is the same thing for Ubuntu. I mean, they have to uh, make a distribution that works on uh, such a, a great variety of hardware. And I, I can only imagine how difficult it can be to fix so many possible and potential bugs without knowing anything about the systems that those bugs are uh, are on. I mean, uh, the sure. problem that works on my machine and, and nobody else's.
0: Yeah, it's, it's hard to fully appreciate it from the support standpoint and how do you make decisions and how do you design your software when you have zero visibility into your user base. And um, if you want to see that what the information actually is, if you're on 1804 right now, you can run Ubuntu-report space show and it will generate the report that gets sent. So you can review it and see how benign this is. Wimpy, were you going to jump in with something there? I, I was.
3: There's a couple of issues I have with this particular video. The first is... Everything about it is technically inaccurate. So it's got a wonderful clickbaity title. But the first thing it explains uh, to do is remove the Ubuntu report package, which is actually the wrong package to remove because that isn't the package that the GNOME first run wizard interacts with. And you actually see this. <laughs> wow. You, you actually see this in the video that he clicks no and it generates the opt-out report and he, he sort of skips over it a little bit. So it's removing the wrong package. He also suggests that you remove Popularity Contest, which is also known as PopCon. Now, that's installed by default, but it's not enabled by default, and sending a telemetry report doesn't enable PopCon. PopCon is installed by default, not enabled, and we have no plans to turn it on. So in... suggesting that you remove ubuntu report and popularity content because the contest because these are the things that collect data that also removes the ubuntu standard meta package and what that does is breaks your upgrade path from 1804 to any subsequent version of ubuntu so if you follow the instructions in this video one it doesn't actually cha- change the behavior of uh, the first-run wizard. And two, it breaks your ability to upgrade in the future.
0: Wow. Great that is, Just that great. is That is really that is damaging in a way that I hadn't even touched on before, is that a lot of times these videos are poorly researched and kind of thrown together because you need to capitalize on something while it's very popular in order to generate... There's no time for
1: research, Chris.
0: YouTube has this term that they tell you to score for called VPH. Which stands for views per hour, and you want to optimize your VPH so that way it juices the algorithm and puts you in front of subscribers. And the way you do that is by producing a video on something that's trending at the moment, that's popular amongst your audience at the moment. And so that is a long way of saying you are incentivized to rush content on YouTube. You see,
3: and that's that's damaging as well, right? Because some, YouTubers are being incentivized to incentivized to produce content quickly which could be fine in some respects but the 17 pence extra a month that this particular video is going to generate you know which which is trading off um besmirching ubuntu's reputation with with a technically inaccurate you know, you know bit of video tutorial it that is poisoning the well it doesn't help anybody you, you see all of these comments, they, they see a data collection, they assume this is like, you know, the, the, the kind of invasive stuff that's in Windows 10. Literally, they that's in the all, comments
0: several times, yeah. yeah.
3: And, and they make all the wrong assumptions, and there is nothing in the words that are used in the video or the title to suggest otherwise. And the source code's available. You know, I mean, if, if you want to research this, you just go and look at the source code and see how it works.
2: What i find frustrating is is that uh, martin alluded to the fact that if you if you do something there are some things that it's possible to do to ubuntu that many new users follow blindly a tutorial that breaks their experience six months down the line when they come to upgrade to the next point release or if they're more conservative they upgrade to the next lts release and the problem is people don't remember In six months' time, they won't remember that a thing they did six months ago is the reason why they can no longer upgrade. We get it in the neck. And people say Ubuntu upgrades don't work. They do if you don't screw your system in the first (laughs) place, right? But the problem is you screwed your system six months ago, and you've long forgotten any terminal command that some random dude on YouTube told you to put in. You thought it was a good idea at the time because that's what he told you. Six months later, you're in our IRC channel or on our support network asking us, why is my system broken? I've upgraded and I've got a black screen or it won't upgrade or it crashes or whatever. And we're like, well, you know that thing you did six months ago? No, 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 it's you. You're the reason all this stuff is broken. It's Ubuntu's fault. And that's a really bitter pill to swallow because we try really hard to make these upgrades work. But if people actively shoot themselves in the foot, it's really hard to undo that. And that that's really painful six months, two years down the line. Some behind
3: the scenes, if you do remove the Ubuntu standard package, which people have done for different reasons in error, there are some heuristics in the upgrade manager that try to figure out what version of Ubuntu did you have installed before it got gutted to try and piece together what it should do to repair the situation but it's a best guess you know because you can do so much to your system to mess with it and this kind of thing removing the base meta package is just
0: a recipe for disaster yeah i'm really glad you brought that up because i hadn't i hadn't uh, watched more than a few minutes into the video where i started to I started to read the comments and I got really frustrated because two things. uh, It plays on the paranoia of a technically savvy audience about metrics. And it builds perhaps momentum against future projects that might want to do something similar. And I would argue that is a bad thing because I would make an argument that these metrics are benign and that they are beneficial. And then they are much more beneficial than they are in any way benign in a sense that they could track you or that they would be identifiable. The thing is, is you really have to appreciate how much insight they're able to gain just out of knowing the types of processors, the Windows server, and desktop environments. That can significantly give a company like Canonical important information so they know where to focus development resources and they're competing against commercial operating systems that are doing 10 times the level of data collection. Right,
1: and then and then on the other side, right, you end up with complaints about why don't we have this, why don't we have that, how come we can't compete, and
0: so, it's just a no-win game in that world. At the beginning of this episode, we talked about the GNOME project removing the ability to run binary files. Imagine, and I'm not suggesting that this would be a good world, but let's imagine that the GNOME project did have telemetry on how people used GNOME Shell. And let's say they had telemetry that showed that 75% of their users at least once a day launched a binary file from their file manager. They may not be considering removing that functionality, but they have no data. They have no insights other than their gut intuition and what they grok from the drive-by feedback that they get.
2: I have no and – I, and I and I think most people in Ubuntu have no problem with the fact that people might want to tick the no box and say, no, I don't want to do this, right? Yeah, have at and It's an individual decision that someone might say, you know what, I don't care, uh, and I actually value my own personal privacy so much that I don't want to even tell you what resolution display I had when I installed the software product that I got for you from f- for free, right? I don't want to tell you that. Okay, fine. But that's another step to then make a video to tell the whole world not to do that as well. That's what gets me because when you socialize that whole don't allow Canonical to have any kind of data in order to plan what they're doing in the future – and then we plan things and you say, well, what the fuck are canonical thinking? Why were they doing those things? Why did they focus on laptops with 1366 by 768 displays? Well, because that's the only data we have, right? We, that's all we know. And if we don't know what type of displays there are out there, what types of CPUs are there, we can't make educated decisions. And if everyone is told to turn this shit off, what the fuck are we gonna do?
0: I agree, and it's gonna it's gonna scare other projects away from something similar. Uh, and the thing that is unfortunate is this was pretty well implemented. I really have to say, the 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 real cherry on the top was at the end where you could see the report or the fact that you could show yourself the report at any time. You can see in a plain text file what's being simple sent. transparent, and and it's all clearly documented about what from the bug reports get sent and all of that telemetry. So. It, you know, even when it was done, I think probably the most open and transparent way possible, including the very source code, the powers all of this is open. Um, I, I just don't know. I, it's obvious that the core issue here is is that there is a financial incentive or a even ego incentive for different outlets to try to make hay on this. Uh, there's a lot of stories that just get blown out of proportion, and this is just another one of them. So I, I've, I've made this point before. I, I won't. I won't make it again. But uh, thanks, you guys, for your your thoughts on that, and uh, just be um, be aware of it. Even if you don't want to opt into data collection, just uh, be aware of uh, of the impact this kind of stuff has. Because I think you're completely, like Popey said, you're 100 within your right to not send any data. I do think it's I think it's pretty nice though to send them that I'm opting out, so that way they get a signal, so you can essentially have a vote still. I think I think that's something to consider. Um, all right, I want to just also talk about uh, really briefly a little follow-up on the reverse engineering at Purism for some of Intel's FSP stuff that disappeared off the internet all of a sudden. Whoa. Yeah, there was a blog post that went up uh, describing the in-depth technical process that they went through recently to uh, reverse engineer some of this Intel crap. And uh, we noticed on land that it disappeared, and so we made we made a comment on Linux Action News that perhaps they had been contacted by Intel. Mm. Yeah, it looks like that was the case. It looks like Intel politely asked Purism to remove their document because they thought it might conflict with licensing terms, i.e. if you want to buy processors from us in the future, you'll be uh, taking that down. That's <laughs> <laughs> a, <laughs> a pretty big fist to say no yeah. to. Yeah, and so they complied. However, the internet never forgets, as you well know, and Chris somehow found a copy in archive.org. You, <laughs> you. So if you want to read this extremely in-depth technical document... Um, I'll have a link in the show notes linuxunplugcom slash 249 uh, to archive.org Wes I almost think we should save this Docker story for another day probably a better discussion yeah Yeah. I'll just just quickly uh, last week I made a comment at the end of the show I think nobody's going to like this episode because we talked about containers too much and I got a couple of emails that were like I actually really enjoyed that because nobody else is really talking about that and it's a huge part of my life these days and it's a huge part of where software is going so I feel like people have their heads in the sand and then other emails were like, it's new to me and I m mm-hmm. you know I'm learning, so right. it was interesting to hear what you could do with it. Nobody really emailed and saying they hated it, but I assume some people do get tired of us talking about uh, magical ponies and, and container technologies. So I'm going to save why Docker is dangerous, and it's a gamble that you will regret for a future episode, (laughs) but it's out there. We'll be talking more about it in the future, because there is still that question that I want to get to before we wrap up. I want to ask the Room and Wes if it's time to move on from the all-GTK or all-cute mentality. So let's start first by thanking Ting. I'm taking them to Texas with me. This show is going to be broadcasted over Ting all the way down to Tejas, and it's Perfect. It's pay for what you use wireless. So I've got a little MiFi for CDMA, and I've got a little MiFi for GSM because Ting has both networks. And I let them sit around for a little bit, you know, boss level. It's six dollars for the line. So you don't care. That's fun and badger. And you can actually, you can, you could just deactivate the device if you weren't going to use it for six months, and then just order up a SIM and pop it in and good to go again. That's actually what I've done, and it's great because then I've got CDMA and GSM with me as I go, and I just pay for the usage. So whenever I'm parked somewhere that has Wi-Fi, which I always shoot for then I'm not paying anything for data. It's like I'm just getting by for free. It's nationwide coverage with no contracts. It's just $6 for the line, and you pay for what you use, your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. There's a control panel you can log into to always check your minutes and your messages and your data usage. And you can always take total control, turn stuff on and off, activate and deactivate devices. You can set usage alerts. If I ever get talked into giving my kids a phone, I'm going to start using those usage alerts. Dylan, stop it! Too much. Get off them internets. (laughs) And they got lots of devices, including the new uh, Moto devices. Got the modules. Have you seen that where you can snap on a new camera or battery and stuff? They're selling that now. Or you can bring your device, and they'll give you a $25 service credit. Love it. Might just pay for more than your first month. So go check it out. Linux.ting.com. That's Linux.ting.com. I just noticed there's a there's a TechSnap logo there. I, yeah, I did. I noticed that. That too. threw me off a little That's bit. A little I'm bit like, weird. am I am I
1: doing the TechSnap <laughs> show? <laughs> but no. don't worry, you still get to type Linux.
0: Linux.ting.com and maybe go see the old TechSnap logo. It's kind of retro. Woo-hoo. I made that logo.
1: Look at you! Yeah, you can uh, tell professional. too.
0: Professional. You can you can tell I made In that logo. We had a new one. Yeah, yeah. The new logo is done by a Pro. Okay, so this was a question that popped up on the dumpster fire known as our Linux, and it was asking: Is this mentality still relevant today? The all GTK or all cute mentality. I ask this because I've seen people arguing about this online. He says, nowadays, there's a lot of disk space, so usually having two GUI frameworks installed really doesn't make a big difference on disk usage. And he says, there's also people who use GTK apps when using a GTK desktop, and Qt apps when using a Qt desktop, and they only use those apps. And I actually will admit to, uh, when I switched back to Plasma again, I... uh, I tried to just, just try to do cute everything. Uh-huh. And when I couldn't find like a good cute Twitter tel- uh, client, I just didn't even bother getting it. I just use the website now. N- yeah, sure. Or I was using CoreBird on Gnome. Or some Curses UI you found. <laughs> that would be great. So I admit I actually do kind of try to skew all cute now. Wow. Back in QO notes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I admit I've done this a little bit. Um what do you think you get out of it? Well, do you do you like it? You know there's Feel clean. there's small things that I appreciate. Small consistency things like in my open and close or open and save dialogues like my favorites and my bookmarks uh, are different between my GTK and cute dialogue open and close boxes and that's always frustrating cuz mm-hmm. I'll be like working in cute apps all day and so I'll have like a new bookmark in there and then I go into a GTK app and uh I gotta browse the file system like an animal. It's so slow, yeah. you know, and that stuff is kind of frustrating. So that makes me kind of prefer that. Uh, and then you get other bennies usually, like the Plasma notification integration or KIO slave stuff. And there's just things that are with the cute apps that I I just like to better have. integration, sort of yeah. the first class feel. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, you, what are you you're on the GNOME side of things. You don't seem to like uh, shy away from a cute app though. From no, no, that's like, fine. Um, I don't have a. I don't have a
1: ton of cute apps. You but kind of I have a really, mixed family desktop, don't you? I, a little bit, yeah. But oh. I don't. Yeah, I. I don't. I don't. I guess I can see why you might want to do it. I can appreciate a little of the software purism, but I'm not. It just looks
0: a little better. Oh, that's gotten a lot
1: better these days. I guess it depends on if it's. If it's a program that's easily replaced, then sure. You know, maybe you'll find a new program that you love. That's one of the great things about being a Linux open source enthusiast, right, is
0: you have so many choices. I'll tell you, I've taken this far enough that I've given Kmail several goes. Yeah, okay, yeah. And, you know, it's it's I like Kmail in its own way. I like it. It's in its own esoteric, unique way. I like it. But...
3: Snap install mail springs.
0: <laughs> That's just what I ended up going back to Mailspring. Nice. Yeah, I did, and it's the snap too. I snap installed Mailspring, and I just it's just better. But it's it, it's like a, this hybrid app. It's not a cute app either. Really? you've been thinking about it, and though. that bugs me. Yeah, it is something that crosses my mind. What about you guys in the Mumble room? Anybody want to admit if they're a cute or GTK purist? I'm not
3: a purist. No, so I use what is the best. Tool for the job. So, for example, I use QO Q- Q- notes as well. Uh, that's a cute application, but it's the, the best that's available. I use the Shotcut Video Editor and OBS, and they're both cute applications. Yeah, and I, I do use too. VLC, Video Player, yep. and that's a cute application. Same. Um, so, yeah, I, I use what's best.
0: Yeah, when you install MailSpring, by the way, little pro tip if you snap install MailSpring on the Plasma desktop, you also have to install GNOME Keyring in the background because it will not run without that. I have
5: two machines. One is mostly with the approach of let's try to use everything Gnome. Ah. Uh-huh. And the other machine, it's the one I develop in. That one, of course, is full of everything.
0: huh. yeah. Interesting. So why do you have the one that's all pure? Is that,
5: in an ideal world, your preferred setup? Just generally, I would like to see the project. Uh, I, I started with Gnome, essentially. And I'd like to see the project to be able to be self-sufficient in all of its toolings. There's no better way to try the flow. I also am a very big fan of default. So I don't tend to use things that by default are not the way I tend to like the most. I really don't like fiddling around. In the beginning, that was exciting. No longer, just no time for that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I understand. That's how I kind of see it. It's just Let's try to reduce the you know the foreign aspects and have the experience. And if the experience is not it, try find something else. Generally that's how I go. And something else might mean the whole new package. I don't care what toolkit an application has. Looking down my
2: launcher, I've <laughs> things that I'm running right now, Firefox, Telegram, GNOME Terminal, Steam. Slack, IRC Cloud, Visual Studio, Zenkit, VirtualBox, Discord, Signal, and Mumble. Yeah. Don't care. They yeah. all are the th- – so if I want to talk to you, I use Mumble on this, this show right now. I'm not going to go out there and say I can't use Mumble because it's cute and I've got a GTK oh. desktop. That's just Jeez. lunacy, right? I, I'm using the, I'm the application to- that I need to get the job done. And so I installed the right application for the job.
5: But that's not what I'm advocating. I'm just saying. I that didn't say you did. There's a preferential path that I have, and then of course you do one or other exception. Yeah. But yeah. I think that that for having that cohesive expression experience, you do in the beginning go through. Oh, maybe there's a lack of this. And again, I have two machines, and I develop stuff. And it's also one way of seeing. Oh, there's a potential target here to sure. develop and
2: and i can i can see like how someone might want to uh dive fully into the elementary uh, experience and only use elementary applications designed you know written in vala uh delivered in the elementary app store and designed specifically for that environment and i can see why you might do that but i'd be pretty sure after a short while you'd feel like you're missing out on something. And Mm. there's a couple of applications you really need and there's someone you need to talk to or there's some application you need access to or some data you need access to that you need to install something that breaks outside of that amazing though it is Vala boundary yeah. and into cute
1: or GTK or whatever Yeah, it does yeah. seem inevitable from that perspective I might want a, a new user to start out in a consistent world yeah, and yeah. then you sort of eventually learn about the realities of the of the world that we live in and okay it's a little more complicated you gotta, than get, the real you gotta world.
4: get the work done yeah. I do admit
5: to one unique constraint I do usually tend to put myself is to not install apps I cannot maintain myself in case doomsday Hmm. So that is actually also part of how I decide. Some apps I really like, but for example, they're in Go. So I'm never going to use them because I really hate that language as an example. And so I'm not going to be willing to maintain it in Go. I try to find alternatives, or just put the effort in so that it happens in another language that I feel it's the best way. I love your doomsday scenario. is not I need to find food and
2: drink, but I need to be able to code applications that I'm using on my
5: laptop. <laughs> well, you have to maintain, you know, right? You, yeah. you, like, what's the point of having source code if one Priority day yeah. things shut down and you you can't fix it? The bunker is gonna have computers, obviously. They right. gotta
0: keep running. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, I think I I think I kind of agree with all of that. Uh, Most Mostly, you got to have the best tool for the job, and that's always the way I'll land. Even if it's a GDI application running via Wine, I'll use it if that's what I have to use. But if there is any kind of thing that sort of tilts the preference dial, it would be if I could also get it in whatever the native toolkit of my desktop is. Well, I think, I
1: think that's what architect in the IRC sums it up perfectly. Use the least offensive tool for the job. Yeah,
0: yeah that's very well put. Yeah, okay, I'd love to know your thoughts too. Let us know linuxunplugged.com slash contact where you can send in questions to the show or if you are a cute or GTK purist. There have been times, especially when using Gnome 3 Shell, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am tempted. Client-side decorations all the places! Uh, forever! Yeah. <laughs> let us know. Let us know how you feel about it. If you want to join our mumble room, we do have a setup guide that you can follow. Yeah. yeah. If you just go Google Jupiter Colony mumble setup guide, guess what? You'll pretty much find it. It's pretty much all it takes right there. You can follow Wes on the Twitter. He's at Wes Payne. You can go get more poppy and wimpy in the fantastic ubuntu podcast a new episode just came out and you can find out how many laptops each of them have oh boy also wes and i just did a breakdown of e on TechSnap, all of the technical details all of those goodies in this week's episode of TechSnap. if you want to know more about e what's going on with gnu pg and open pgp and what the re- de- real details are what the real deets are it's all in that episode. all them deets Alright, thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of The Unplugged Program, and guess what? We're going to see you right back here next Tuesday! Our oh, roof, roof, roof guard dogs on the unplugged job. They don't want the show to end. No, they Keep love it the un- they love the unplugged program. Mumble room, thanks you guys. It was a great conversation and a bunch of stories that you had some good insights on. So I really appreciate you making it today. You're wonderful. You're gosh darn wonderful. Now, we got to name this thing, and the JBot's still down because, uh, long story short, it was... JBot's down again? Yeah, well, you know that Archbox is falling oh, apart, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, So I got TCP IP no up. No way. I know. Well, it didn't get updated for a couple of years. So I got I got the TCP stack working again, and I got SSH up and running again. Well, those again. are luxuries. But I still can't get JBot to uh, properly function. Oh. But the OS is actually standing again. I don't know how okay. I did it. Okay. Like a miner through the DigitalOcean console, chipping away at all of the cruft. Literally, so what happened was praise be to that console. The system hadn't been updated uh, for a couple of years because um, it's been a while since DigitalOcean let you deploy Arch. <laughs> yes, it. A, has. And so years, yeah. And it got locked to an old kernel and all. The, anyways, long story short, they had to reboot for meltdown inspector, and, and when it wow. rebooted. Shh. It didn't really ever come back up quite right, and so I I went in there and sort of salvaged the system and got it standing again. Got even it, it, we figured out like we had to like su to uh, Rekai's account. Yep, yeah. So we got like the little esoteric like what weird user situation we had to be in, and where the scripts were to start everything. Figured all that out, and it connects up and it just generates errors. So uh, we don't have it long. That's my long way of saying we don't have JBot to uh, do to uh, do title suggestions. We have to just come up with it on our own. So much pressure. You can throw it in the chat room, though. I saw uh, Fub Fud Buntu. I kind of don't like that, though, because it sounds like a... <laughs> oh, guard dog. It sounds like a flavor, so I kind of don't like that. So other title suggestions would be appreciated. I also wanted to uh, point out a documentary by DW, which... Um, somebody remind me, DW, are they out of Germany, I believe? But I'm drawing a blank... They just did a video called The Microsoft Cyber Attack. And uh, it's, eh, you know, that the premise is a little meh. But they go to Munich and uh, during all the transition stuff and they talk about how Microsoft lobbied to to make some of this uh, transition from uh, LibreOffice back to Microsoft software. Uh, And they cover also a French government transition uh, to Linux. There is some rando shots of consultants using uh, Unity, like uh, at the 27-minute mark. There's a a consultant that they're doing an interview with, and she's using Unity on a... It looks like an XPS, and she's using the touchscreen to scroll a document that she's showing the journalist. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes if you want to check it out. The Microsoft cyber attack, though, if you just Google it on... YouTube and it's it's uh, in English they've they've uh, done oh, translations nice. so great yeah it was a really cool documentary I didn't think the premise started a little like uh, too too newbie you know I was like uh, this is thick but then they got into like the Linux and Limux stuff and then I was all in which happens about halfway into it all right we got to name this thing Wes
1: we do what did we talk about oh all the things that'll make it easy